Great Little Zion Baptist Church. We celebrate your presence here today with us. Enjoy the worship service as you sit back and listen to the singing as it gives inspiration to your soul and then the preaching of the word of God as it gives instruction to your soul. Be blessed as God has a word for you today.
family, friends, and guests, here are our weekly announcements. Tune in every Wednesday for our prayer meeting at 6.30 p.m. on our virtual Bible study every Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. On the weekends, we have our youth and young adult Sunday school sessions every Saturday at 10 a.m. and our adult Sunday school every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. We thank you so much for joining us this morning. Make sure you follow us on social media and make sure you have a blessed rest of your Sunday.
morning, great little design. If you would, take your Bibles and join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We've come now to the final installment in this series of sermons under the title, The Process of Recovery. And we're dealing with part four, which is entitled, Dealing with Unbelief. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And we're going to begin reading at verse 20 and concluding at verse 29. Here is the word of the Lord. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often throws him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd was rapidly gathering he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. And when he had come into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately. Why is it that we could not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but by prayer. Again, dealing with the process of unbelief or dealing with unbelief, the process of recovery. On last week, I provided you with three statements that will serve as our outline for this morning's message. Remember, we were examining a man who is unnamed in the text that sought to bring, his, sought to bring healing to his son's life, who was suffering from the invasion of evil whose intention obviously is to detour your life and his life, simply meaning to throw one's life off course, to destabilize his life or your life, meaning to upset the stability that already exists in your life, to decrease his life and your life, meaning to reduce your potential and eventually to decimate his life and your life, meaning to drastically reduce your strength and effectiveness, ultimately leading to death. Now I mention the word decimate because in its Latin origin, the word meant taken as a tenth. In its English use, the word meant to levy a tithe or to levy a tax or to levy a tenth on a person as a penalty 
And then the Romans took the same use of the word and they in return used the word to allude to a act of punishment of executing one man or a man of tenth or a tenth of the man in what's called a Monticius or a Monticius legion. Now, I should say mutinous, mutinous legion or the word mutinous is an adjective that describes a soldier or a sailor who refuses to obey the order or the orders of a person who's in control, who's in authority. That person is willfully disobedient, rebellious, and determined not to obey. Now, why perhaps? Because they realize the current condition of their existence is not the purpose of their life, and there arises a determination within them that steps forward to declare that it is not going to ruin their life without a fight. I want you to pick up on that theme because that's important to understand that in the life of this boy and even in the life of you and I, there is an unction within us that can step forward and declare that we are not going to relinquish without a fight. Now you might ask, where are you going with this pastor? Well, look at the question that Jesus poses to the father about his son's behavior. I quote, how long has this been happening to him? Verse 21, since childhood. Now we are not told why or how the boy ends up this way, the way that he is. This demonic actor is working hard to destroy the life of this boy. Why? I raise a few questions. Could it be because of his father's dream regarding his son's future? Could it be because the father may have been a praying father and evil couldn't kill the father so it went for the son who has yet gathered the maturity to fight back like the father. The father is interesting because although the father appears to be weak, he's not weak because he goes to the disciples looking for help. He's not so weak that he recognizes he needs help, but swirling around in the atmosphere, at least of our curiosity is, what put the boy in this state of existence? The father becomes a prototype of hope because he refuses to give up on his son and demonstrate something. When I talk about this boy and this father, I want to shift over to the father just for the moment because the father is critically important to the son's recovery. In your life and mine, it behooves us to have others who can step forward and who can intercede when we are in the state of being unable to help ourselves. And yet the father depicts to us 
how important it is that he doesn't give up on his son because here's my first point because he takes the position that in order for his son to recover his son his action his state of existence requires here it is a fighter his state of existence requires a fighter someone who's not afraid to step to the forefront and duel it out with evil. And the question I want to raise to you this morning is, are you willing to fight for your freedom? I'm not talking about the mere context of the text in terms of demonic activity, but in any state in which you find yourself in an existence of bondage or an existence of an incarceration, are you willing to fight for your freedom? Can you take on the fight-like posture of an Ella Baker who worked behind the scenes by advising the likes of W.E.B. Du Bois, Thurgood Marshall, as well as Martin King in helping them understand how to navigate not only through the fight of the civil rights movement, but also how to even handle the legalities of obtaining victory that we might experience some sense of equality. Are you a fighter like Fannie Lou Hayman who said nobody is free until everybody is free? That's a suggestion that I'm not just fighting for my own freedom, but I'm also contemplating the we and the us mentality that all of us will be free as well. Or a Diane Nash, who's still living to this day, co-founder of SNCC, who said freedom by definition is people realizing they are their own leaders, not someone else leading them, not someone else incarcerating them, but that they are their own leaders, not someone else or an evil spirit controlling them, but they themselves. I'm reminded of the Roman fighter Spartacus. Spartacus was a fighting gladiator who the Romans wanted to make a slave and his response to their attempting to make him a slave, he fought for his freedom. Here's his words. I would rather be a free man in my grave than a puppet, a puppet or a slave. Spartacus is critical to Roman history because Spartacus fought in that third gladiator war or what is called the War of Spartacus. He was at least in that last series of that slave rebellion that stood up against the Roman Empire and decided that they would no longer be slaves. That rebellion was known as the Seville Wars. The third war was the only one that was directly threatening to the Roman homeland of Italy itself, Spartacus was a Thracian gladiator who commanded this massive amount of slaves by way of army during this third severe war, the largest and most successful slave rebellion in all of Roman history. His uprising in 73 BC, Spartacus took a small band of slaves and they escaped from the gladiator school by using kitchen utensils as weapons. You gotta catch that. 
You got to read the history of Spartus because I want you to see in his action along with those small band of slaves before there was a Malcolm X, he was already declaring by any means necessary. Are you a fighter? Are you willing to fight for your own freedom? The father in this narrative of Mark 9 grasped what I called last week in regard to the first saying, he grasped the importance of maximizing where you are while dealing with what you were. Notice the father has to endure that intensity of the moment until a change comes for his son. But there is something else lurking in the text that I don't want you to overlook. Don't disregard the importance of the crowd in the text. Remember the crowd is watching to see if Jesus will do what has been said that he can do and they are looking to see not only will he do it, can he do it, and if the man likewise can stand up to the pressure of experiencing his son's recovery. The father may have been embarrassed by being in front of the crowd. He may have wondered if his son was in a losing battle, but his father said, I'm going to take advantage of being in the presence of Jesus where I am while dealing with what my son is encountering, the demonic assault where he is. This text is so relevant because it depicts every person, every person born and who lives in poverty. It screams loud the experience of black Americans who daily experience the assault of dehumanization and inequitable policies, police brutality, and the devalue of black life. It speaks loud for even every LGBTQ person who suffers from discrimination, who suffers from abuse and assaults because of their sexual orientation, yet they have to deal with where they are while dealing with what others think they are or maybe even think they were. They have to be fighters, we have to be fighters despite their opposition. And it's the father who says that this thing is attempting to destroy my son. And here it is in verse 22, clause A, and the crowd is looking. The crowd is listening. The father has to take the stand and demonstrate that he's a fighter on behalf of his son's life. But the father has decided to become a fighter and he has to do that because the father likewise, here's my second point, is thinking about his son's future. So the father, first of all, has to be a fighter for the survival of his son, but also the father now is thinking about his son's future. I can't get past the words of the late John Lewis who reminds us regarding the future when he said freedom is not a state, it's an act. It's not some enchanted garden perched 
high on a distant plateau where we can finally sit down and rest in heaven. In fact, John Lewis makes clear that we have to be some form of existentialist and not mere eternalist. We can't just think about heaven, but you got to think about now because heaven you've never been to, but where you are now in terms of reality, where your current existence is, that you know for a fact. And so Lewis goes on to say freedom is the continuous action we all must take. So in other words, the father has to fight on behalf of the son because the son now that is unable to fight for himself needs his father, but yet the father knows in the future there will be other fathers and sons who will need to understand the importance of fighting for the future of their existence. And so Lewis says freedom is the continuous action we must all take and each generation must do its part to create an even more fair, more just society. And you need only to look into the history of black folk in this country. Every generation we are still fighting for the future. We have to because that's the price of being free. Labor of today provides hope for tomorrow. And Jesus talked about purging in John 15, about purging today that we might bring forth more fruit tomorrow. Jesus wanted to know how long of this boy's condition to assure that tomorrow will not repeat itself, that we'll not go back and see again what we've seen thus far. And in the second clause, clause B of verse 22 in chapter 9 of Mark, the father declares in listening as well as watching Jesus declares if you can do anything, have pity and help us. Recall the second advice that I gave on last week? And that advice was don't lose where you are because you keep going back to where you were. In a short manner of saying that, don't lose today fighting yesterday. Why is that important? Because the father recognized he needed help because his faith was both weak and incomplete. See, I'm not convinced, as many conservative scholars suggest, that when the man responds or asks the question of Jesus, if you can do anything, have pity and help us. I, I don't find that to be a negative statement at all because the man I believe is crying out from the depths of his being because his customary observation is recognizing and looking at his son who's in a condition that breaks his heart and he may not have as he have already declared for us he may not have the faith in fact he might be tired of fighting yesterday and recognize that since you're here, Jesus, today can be an entire different day. 
And that says to us that sometimes we have to shut the door on the yesterday experience, at least in the name of progressing forward, that we might experience what lies ahead. And the father recognized that he needed help, but also he was wise enough to declare to us that his faith is weak and it's incomplete. He correctly perceived that Jesus was willing to deliver his son. I see that, Lord. But he was not sure that he would actually help him. Why? He is in essence saying, I need to see Jesus that my faith is not in vain totally. I need to see the manifestation of a miracle and not just the talk. In reality, the father was desperate. See, I'm also the belief that one can say that they have faith, but that faith is only increased as across the way they see the manifestation of believing that something eventually will evolve, and it does. It doesn't have to be that particular thing. It can be merely steps in the direction of seeing that thing become manifested. But if nothing happens, then what fuels the faith to grow? And I want to suggest that what happens to us often is perhaps we don't see that things are changing or that things are being produced. And so that causes our faith to weaken. And contrary again to those who claim that as a negativity, I don't. I highly suggest that perhaps the stretch, the period of stretch that God is making, causing us to have to dig deep and keep pushing until we see that change or that small glimmer of hope in terms of manifestation. Again, the man is saying, Jesus, I believe, but... I believe far more when I see it come to pass. Give me some glimmer of hope. Now somebody may say, but that's not faith. Well, wait a minute. Like I said, you can't have a continuous growth of faith without seeing something manifested. I don't care how small it is, but it helps us to grow in that faith walk. And as I suggest a man saying, I don't just want to talk about the miracle. I want to see the miracle because as the father, I am desperate in regard to the condition of my son. However, he introduced us to something further that he's wrestling with. And I want to suggest that you and I is wrestling with that as well. He's not only a fighter, a first point. He not only has his son's future in mind, my second point, but the fighting has led him to my third point, fatigue. The man is suffering from fatigue. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, let's raise a couple of questions. Can you imagine the everyday ongoing struggle of knowing and seeing his son endure this pain this attack of the demoniac can you imagine how his flight to work every day was punctuated by the possibility of his son's death can you understand his daily struggle with his faith hearing of a miracle after miracle and yet when it comes to Jesus he is believing 
coupled with his hope that someday the miracle would find his son and bring about a change. Can you imagine that? Can you see him wrestling with the question, will this nightmare Jesus ever come to an end? His son could very well have been a preteen or a teenager. That is an encounter that can produce fatigue. If you are black and living in America, this story and its fatigue interjection is all too familiar to us. I'm thinking about Jermaine Williams, who's a black brother from New York City, who confessed at a press conference regarding the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd last spring. He reported by saying in reference to the impact of racism and police brutality, he says, I quote, I'm not okay. I'm not okay today. And I want the black community to understand I give them permission to say we are not okay. He says, it's too much. He says when it came to watching the video of Ahmaud Aubrey, he couldn't do it. It's too much. He couldn't watch the video of George Floyd. It's too much. Black people have to go to work, he says, the next day and be okay while someone who looked like them just experienced police brutality that led to death and everybody expects for us to be okay. Some even suggested even if it's not okay, a mere apology should set the captive free. I'm so sick of every time we experience brutality and the corporate knows that they're guilty, the evidence is clear, and what they want to immediately rush to do is give an apology, and from that point on, they believe everything should be all right. We should hold hands and sing kumbaya, when in reality, that's not even the start of what reconciliation is. And some of us, particularly clergy, are so grasping and hunger for power, we buy into that nonsense. Selling out our own people, not holding them accountable for the injustice that they have reigned on us. And I say with Jermaine Williams, I'm tired of racism. Williams simply describes black fatigue. What is black fatigue? Black fatigue is the repeated variation of stress that results in extreme exhaustion and causes mental, physical, and spiritual maladies that are passed down from generation to generation. That's what police brutality has done. That's what inequitable policies have done. That's what systemic racism has done in every generation, passes it down, the next has to pick up the mantle and try and fight as best as they can to alleviate that pain, only to discover that you can move forward two steps, but you'll push back five. What's that saying? Black people experience, and they suffer from unrelenting racist systems every single day. 
And I'm arguing in this text a contemporary existential moment, and that is that black people along this father cries out with the same comment to Jesus. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. That's verse 22. And the response of Jesus suggests to me that he, Jesus, thought on the father's statement for a moment. Ah, now, some scholars think because of the reaction of Jesus that he might be trying to indict the man. I don't think so. When Jesus responds to the man, I, I think something critical is going on. I believe when you look at verse 23, clause A, the humanity of Jesus in that moment has a conversation with the divinity of Jesus. Look, look at the response. If you can help me, have pity on us and help us, Lord. And look at what Jesus says. Clause A, if you can. See, I think that's a dialogue between his humanity and his divinity. And the humanity of Jesus says, if you can. But his divinity says, all things are possible to him who believes. Verse 23, clause B. Responding to our same request of belief, I do believe you, Lord, are able, but will you? That's our unbelief. See, I, I, as the text says, I, I know, God, you got power, according to the Bible, to correct racism, to correct injustice, to bring about righteousness, but leaving it to sinners to correct sinners' problem is problematic, Lord, and I don't get it. I'm struggling. That births in the man as well as you and I, what I want to call my fourth point, that births not only fatigue that we have, but it births a fragile fatigue faith. That's a faith that's weak and wavering. And Jesus' remedy for fragile fatigue faith may be wrapped up in his response to another party who may be experiencing the same kind of situation. I'm talking about Jarius and his daughter in Mark 5, verse 34 and 35, in which Jesus tells Jairus after hearing news that his daughter has died, he says to him, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. And that seems to be what Jesus keeps saying unto us, only believe, don't be afraid any longer. In Mark 6, verse 5 and 6, Jesus couldn't do any miracles in Nazareth, his own hometown. But watch the language. It says he couldn't do it because he wondered. Listen to this now. He wondered at their unbelief. He wondered why couldn't they believe that I could get it done? Could it be? Because maybe they had seen some manifestation but not in their own context. Because I think the text is suggesting it, access to divine power is predicated upon believing faith. No question about that. Believing prayer. But that connects to my final statement that I provided last week. And that is, if you can't kill it, get it under control 
and conquer it. And I couldn't wait to get here to tell you what that meant today because on last week I sort of left it dangling, but I believe it's defined in the gathering crowd. You see, the gathering crowd birthed that conclusion. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, and when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, look what he did. He rebuked the unclean spirit, but notice he didn't kill it. He didn't destroy it. He merely rebuked it. Fragile is in the man and probably in the gathering crowd as well because Jesus doesn't destroy the demon. He merely casts the demon out to provide new control over the boy's life. He simply told the demon, come out and don't enter him again. Evil's objective is to react with violence, and that's what it does, as a penalty for non-cooperation by the subject to which it's trying to occupy. For attempting to recover your life and your purpose, evil will fight back. Look at verse 26. And after crying out, throwing the boy into terrible, plural, convulsions. Not just one time, but it came out. And the boy became much like a corpse that most of them said all around, it didn't work. He's dead. It killed him. It took him out. Now, I, I got to tell you, I don't like the response of Jesus because I want the enemy destroyed. I don't want him lingering around because he might try to come back again, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus only provides in this instance the necessary power to handle it and to persevere with it until he doesn't kill it he just merely calls it out and sometimes God works that way in our recovery process what we want to kill you notice it doesn't get killed yet it's called out enough where it's no longer an interruption or an agitation in our life but it's a suggestion that there is divine power at work. Now notice as this narrative comes to a close, we know that the son is set free. Mission is accomplished. Look again at verse 26. The boy is free, but he's left in a deaf state, so it seems. The text says he looks like a corpse. That's what the people said. But notice what Jesus does in verse 27. It says... He took him by the hand, raised him up, and the boy got up. Now the mission that the father set out for as the father listening or thinking about his son's future, going through his own mode of fatigue, and now publicly displaying his fragile fatigue faith. But what of his fragile faith? What does the father do from that point? Notice the text doesn't say anything. We don't know anything in regard to the father from that point going forward. However, there is a question. 
How do we cope when God doesn't destroy? Notice he didn't destroy the thorn in Paul's side. Says the Bible, he just gives him grace to handle it. He actually didn't destroy the pigs, remember that was in the demoniac, that the demoniac's spirit, when it came out, it went into the pigs. Jesus didn't destroy the pigs. They actually destroyed themselves by jumping off of the cliff. But he restores the man and helps him to recover his life in Mark 5. As much as it pains me to accept this and to face it and to tell you, you may not kill it, but you can get it under control and conquer it, and maybe because its judgment is not now. I want to close with the story. You may not know who Reese Taylor is, but Reese Taylor was a black woman in 1944 who was allegedly raped by six to seven young white teenage boys in a place called Addersville, Alabama. Miss Taylor died in 2017, and many across the years, including Rosa Parks and Martin King and Septima Clark and various organizations tried to get her justice. Two grand juries would not bring indictments against these boys. And what's amazing is that all of them except one admitted that they had raped her. Well, they admitted, they said it was consensual sex. And they said that she actually sold her body to them. Now, she has a wife and a child, I mean, a husband and a child at home, and yet they said it's consensual sex. But they all likewise sort of gave the indication that they took her by force. And yet, years later, all of them have deceased. But what's amazing is they all died tragically. Many of them, in fact, all but one, I believe, left high school and went into the military. And they died in World War II in Vietnam War, one was shot cheating with another man's wife, and others lived to be in their 60s and one in their 70s. None of them ever stood trial for their actions. But Mrs. Taylor, here it is, lived and outlived all of them and she died three days before her 98th birthday in 2017. The disciples wanted to know, as this story closed, why couldn't we do what need to be done to help this man and this boy? And Jesus says, this kind of issue, this kind of oppression, this kind of injustice, can't be set free outside of prayer. It's the only way you can handle your fragile faith is to look unto God 
and ask the Lord to help you increase what little faith you have. It may be wavering. It may be weak. But there's a suggestion by Jesus as well as the rest of the New Testament writers. What little you have, hold on to that. And I like what the words of the writer of the, in the book of Hebrews says. When you come with what you have, you got to believe that he is a rewarder to those who diligently seek him. Whatever that struggle is, whatever that challenge is, whatever that prison you're trying to break out of today, and it will happen, you can get out. You're going to get out. But you got to fight. You got to think about your future. And your situation, as I said earlier, may be in a state, you may be in a state of fatigue, but don't give up. And even if your faith is fragile and weary, hold on. Keep building with expectancy. And although this boy looks like a corpse, when Jesus reached out, he restored, recovered what had been lost before. That's my prayer for you today. That you continue to reach and look unto the hills from whence come your help. Watch God in amazing ways help you recover and restore your soul. In Jesus' name. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for this passage in Mark chapter 9. And our prayer is that today someone who may be in the fight of their life because something has occupied their life and trying to take them in a different direction in which they are not to go. Give them the spirit of fighting. Help them to see their future. You know what you have in store for them. Plans to bless them and not to harm them. That even when their faith is weak and fatigued, even as if it is like that which of Thomas which Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen me but yet believe. Maybe wavering. Help them, Lord, that they might push through to the victory that awaits them on the other side. Do these things for us. We'll give you the glory. You're worthy of such. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the day that I contend that you are going to be set free. Work at it. Labor. As I said earlier, it will not come easy. Evil will fight and react, but you are a greater fighter. Greater is he that is in you. Remember that, the Christ in you, the hope of glory. We certainly appreciate your observation of this time of worship and fellowship in which we're sharing of the word. Listen, if you are not a member of Greater Little Zion and yet you continuously watch us, think about making a contribution to our ministry that we can continue to provide this opportunity that people will be blessed as well as yourself in the preaching of God's word. We give our gratitude to those of you who continuously support us. Thank you so much. But without your help, we certainly couldn't do what we're doing. Listen, I love you. God loves you. And so does other brothers and sisters who are on the same battlefield with you. Keep your head up. Keep looking. Know that great things are yet to come through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Have a blessed, wonderful day and week in the Lord. Until I see you again.